they're not thinking about how can we be more transparent? How can we say who we are? I think in a lot of ways, they don't want you to know who they are. <laughs> Money makes a Shipping is an area where we still have too little oversight. And a cross-Atlantic global nature of the maritime world leads to complex problems. Financial institutions are increasingly expected to combat sanctions and financial compliance evasion by identifying and monitoring suspicious vessel behavior. And in recent years, regulatory compliance in the shipping industry has become a critical, path, a critical task for the bank's operations. However, the complexity of the shipping industry has caused anxiety amongst a lot of banks, and they might not have the expertise or the tools to navigate these challenges. It's a staggering 12.2% of the world's active ships and vessels that still have unknown owners. And with approximately 80% of the world's goods being imported by sea, there's no wonder why there is increased pressure to understand who owns these ships. In today's episode, we will deep dive into this topic to get a better understanding of the problem. We'll discuss recommendations of what to do, and we'll talk about what will happen next in the world of maritime ownership, transparency, as well as sanctions. Hopefully, shedding some light on what to do to stay compliant. Joining me is Tom Cardamon, CEO of Global Financial Integrity, and Michael Byrne, the CEO of the Institute of International Banking Law and Practice, who alongside SP Global published a report, Vessel Ownership, Trade Finance, and Regulatory Compliance. Tom and Michael are uniquely qualified to speak on today's topic of this episode and shed some light on the increased expectations for banks to combat sanctions and financial crime compliance evasion by monitoring suspicious vessel behavior. Let's jump into the conversation with Tom and Michael. All right, Tom and Michael, welcome to The Laundry. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to this episode, and I think that we should we should just jump straight into it. Because uh, last week, your organization, together with S&P Global, it published a fresh report about the relationship between vessel information and compliance liabilities. So, please tell us what what was the background for this report, and and why did you why did you get started with it, and and why was this published? Sure. So um, let me take that one. Um, as in terms of the background, I think. Um, you know, since the 2020 OFAC and OFSI guidelines on monitoring vessels, uh, financial institutions are uh, not entirely sure what they need to do. And, and um, in a lot of ways, they're not necessarily even sure what uh, the information means. You know, a lot of the maritime industry is not as well known. A lot of the terms aren't as well known as, uh, you know, there's other industries. So uh, what we've tried to do is... Um, help uh under help financial institutions understand what some of that means um and we've done a couple of other papers uh the goal of this one was really just to answer a, a fairly straightforward question um a, an, uh, an observation actually posed by uh, a colleague of ours at a bank um when they have a transaction with an unknown owner they uh it gets paused while they do something to fix it and we all thought i wonder if that's true across you know the whole the whole of of, of ship and uh, vessel ownership. So the question we wanted to find out is what is there or is there any tie-in between a vessel's owner uh, being listed as unknown and any sort of um, I like to call it risky behavior that could be anything from uh, a complicated ownership structure, 
um, AIS outages uh, for more than ought to be or to be expected, any sort of behavior where you go into either a sanctioned port or ownership by someone who's a sanctioned entity, all the way up to and literally including the vessel being sanctioned by OFAC or OFC. Uh, so just calling that risky behavior, we just wanted to see if there was a relationship. Um, <laughs> I think the paper sort of speaks for itself, right, Tom? <laughs> yes, absolutely does. When you have such a high percentage of uh, global commercial ships with no known owner, 12%, which is more than 8,300 ships. It's actually quite stunning, such a high percentage. And I would quickly note that the, the, the definition of ownership transparency in the shipping world is different uh, than it is in my world where, where global financial integrity operates, which is in the uh, pushing for uh, the individual person or persons who actually own a company. There's some 110 governments who have uh, accepted the idea, endorsed the idea of creating a beneficial ownership registry to eliminate what are commonly known as anonymous shell companies. Uh, so if, when you do that, if, if I own a limited liability company, uh, if I want to establish one, I have to give my name and address and maybe a government ID, some very basic information. That's not even uh, what the shipping world uh, thinks about when they refer to uh, beneficial ownership. Uh, so even among the 88% uh, of the ships that we think we have ownership information on, uh, many of those, uh, we don't even know who owns the company. It could be a shell company within a shell company within a shell company. So um, the 12% in and of itself is shocking, uh, but the problem could be much worse than that. It's never been more important to have a trustworthy global view of your customers and their business relationships with a technology setup that operationalizes the evolving rules at 100 times the speed of anyone else. Strass Global is a powerful extension to the Strass KYC intelligence system. It allows your team to fetch your customers' entire global network. This includes roles, UBOs, and ownership structure with a click of a button. It also lets you perform more accurate PIP and sanction screening across the entire network and continuously monitor them for changes. Finally, it allows you to perform counterparty screening and entity creation, delivering a complete solution with total oversight. Head to strice.ai and try our new interactive demo of Strice Global. So, so why do you guys think this is? Why, why is the situation so much worse, if we were to put it that, that way, in, in the maritime industry than sort of traditional banking on land? Um, stating that, that there's 12% that you do not know who you're doing business with. And if we look at the data from the report where it, it stated that 80% of the world's counterfeit goods uh, comes via ships as well. Uh, we could make the case that approximately 10% of the uh, of the dark economy is fueled directly into those 12% of owners. Uh, oh, let me see, oh, owner um, oh, the the ships without owners. So, so why haven't we been able to to create a register? What what's going on here? 
Uh, I'll start this one as well. I think um, there's a couple of, of different things going on. Um, one of them is, you know, certainly uh, since the day after somebody first put uh, something into water and floated, they brought goods somewhere. So this is a very old industry and they have a lot of old traditional uh, thinking going uh, happening, you know, so it's not they're not thinking about how can we be more transparent? How can we say who we are? Uh, I think in a lot of ways. They don't want you to know who they are. <laughs> um, I know there's a number of, of exceptions the shipping industry has over other industries, um, but there's other real practical complications. Um, from for a bank, for example, when you finance goods, um, they show up uh, in a container. Let's just say it's trained or trucked to a port. If it's even a few minutes late and the vessel it was intended to be on is gone. The freight forwarder, who is a you know a logistics guru's job, is to get the goods where they're supposed to be. They will put them on the next vessel. Most of the time, they don't really care anything about the vessel. They know it's there, and they know where it's going to go, and probably don't care if it stops somewhere else. Um, also, it is a very paper-heavy industry. So you know the the freight forwarder, logistics manager, probably has a pile of paper about you know as big as my head. And they're flipping through trying to find, oh, this container isn't going to make it. Okay, let's put it in this pile for the next vessel going to from wherever to wherever. So without even thinking about potential criminal activity, it's already an incredibly complicated uh, industry. And then when you also consider that many of the ports involved in this are in, in uh, emerging type markets, you know, a lot of our goods are manufactured in um, emerging markets and sent to to other places, I mean, computers may not even be anywhere at the port at all. <laughs> well, at that, that level, yeah, it's, I, uh, I, yeah, I agree it's with uh, Michael, very but... interesting and obviously a huge problem being, uh, if it's very paper-driven, it's, uh, as you say, uh, it might be from emerging markets, It's, but, but still, it seems like we're doing business with a large, of emer a large number of emerging markets where we have KYC and KYB processes in, in place, so... Are there any incentives to turn a blind eye for the ports? Do you think is there any um, lack of oversight from a regulatory perspective that leads to this actually being possible? Still, um, it, isn't the incentive there simply put, or what do you think? Probably, I would say um, you know when you when you think about the U.S. sanctioning a, a vessel or a person. Um, you know, it's a it, it makes that a thing for for a U.S. company or a U.S. owned vessel. But if we're talking about a vessel owned or a several several vessels owned by somebody in another country who really doesn't care about the U.S.'s sanctioning somebody, it might be you know they might have family in some of these countries and might not think that this is a problem. Um, so there could be some incentives. I mean, most ports are very, you know, they operate as legitimately as they need to. <laughs> um, and I would say most freight forwarders do the same, but, you know, it's a little different when you're talking about somebody operating in a, and I don't want to name any countries because it's, it happens everywhere. Um, your job is to get the goods on something. You kind of just want them, want them done and out because you got another 10,000 containers sitting in a yard waiting to get onto another vessel. But a lot of the challenges, and, and as we've talked about, some of the counterfeit goods are sitting in those containers. And the the people producing and shipping these counterfeit goods, um, they know how it works and they mm. are taking advantage of a system where you can't inspect every container, where the freight forwarders 
aren't interested in anything to do with other than getting it on a vessel and where the banks hadn't had to even know or care about any of this. So there's a lot of, eh, not loopholes, but there's a lot of gaps when it comes to, you know, regulatory and, and, and legal rules about it. And the fraudsters, as we all know, and I know you've covered it a lot on past podcasts, they look everywhere for there's a weakness and they take advantage of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you have anything to add on that, Tom? Yeah, I, I, it is interesting that that uh, an interest in industry as large as commercial shipping is is still operating like it was the 17th century. Uh, <laughs> you know, all paper driven, um, very opaque. Um, it's uh, we're in the 21st century, and um, you know what can go on a ship can be devastating to a particular country. You don't know whether there's a dirty bomb on it or what have you. Um, so I think we have reached the point in the evolution of the global economy that there has to be far more transparency on who owns these ships. The average number of ships held by any one company is five. And when you think that there's 68,000, 69,000 uh, ships, commercial ships in use, uh, you do the math and you realize how many companies are out there operating, uh, un unclear of who runs many of them, where they're located, uh, how they uh, how they get their money, uh, what trade they're involved in. Uh, this is just this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. You know, we one of the one of the things in the in the paper we showed is that close to 500 ships with no known owners visited U.S. ports 800 times in 2022 alone. From a port security framework alone, that's a problem. If I'm Customs and Border Protection, if I'm Homeland Security, I'm awake nights now that I know that. Um, I, I, and I think that alone should sort of focus the mind of policymakers in the United States um, and I, I can't imagine it's, it's uh, any less bad anywhere else. So just looking at port security is an issue. You want to look at um, transnational organized crime, trafficking, illicit trade. Illicit trade alone is over a trillion dollars a year, one trillion dollars. And that's got to be coming mostly by ship. Uh, mm. I, I think there are so many upsides to having more transparency uh, in this industry that I don't think governments can ignore it any longer. And it's got to come, the impetus has to come from government. It's not going to come from the industry. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. And, and you mentioned the, sort of the consequences of this, because one thing is the numbers, right? And obviously, a trillion dollars, you, you, that's not pocket change by, by any means. Uh, but, but also, it has this very human aspect, because um, like before the, the podcast started as well, we, we spoke briefly about this, like the consequences of these illicit goods coming on shore because it's not just about a a toy uh that might like you you get it cheaper from from wherever you buy it but it this is pharmaceuticals these might be medicines this is this is stuff that people's lives are dependent on that they might not be able to afford other places but it might be poisonous so quickly just what what do you guys thought on on that particular aspect of, of this in, entire problem. I think you're, you're, you're making, making my point. That's exactly right. So illicit trade can be a whole host of things. 
uh, that can uh, make somebody sick. Maybe they can die from them. Uh, medical equipment, uh, not just pharmaceuticals, but medical medical equipment that might not be made to specifications uh, could cause an operation to go awry. You never really know. Um, and and I would even broaden this uh, even further to say there are tremendous human rights violations in the shipping industry. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are many uh, environmental concerns, illegal fishing, um, and damage of uh, various coastlines when the ships are broken up. Uh, they can't trace that ship back to who actually owned it. Uh, and so workers get sick, the environment gets uh, polluted, um, and on and on. There are so many adverse impacts in so many areas. Uh, seafarers' rights is yet another uh, issue um, that we could probably be spending a whole podcast on talking about how opacity in the system allows for that to continue. And, and just to put a final highlight on this point, there, there are a couple of books uh, then I would recommend people take a look at. One is called Dead in the Water, and one mm -hmm. is Outlaw Oceans. These are probably two of the best things written on opacity in global shipping. Uh, and they both read like thrillers, so uh, it's not dense by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but these give you an in-depth look at how opacity is used to perpetrate fraud, uh, abuse human rights, cover up murder, all sorts of things. Um, and that's where, that's, these are the reasons why we need more transparency in the sector. Wonderful. Anything to add on that, Michael? I mean, I just couldn't agree more. Um, you know, uh, you had mentioned the pharmaceuticals. I mean, a lot of times they are, there's no active ingredients. They might be sawdust. Um, there have been a number of stories here of, uh, you know, there was a big airbag, uh, was it for Honda or somebody where the quality of the airbags were, they were ended up being counterfeit and they caused a number of, of, of deaths and injuries. I mean, this is, you know, and that's just down to the human level. I think one of the, one of the things that has been really complicated for, for the transparency industry is how do you tie it to any other person walking around? You know, how does it affect them? You know, you think, oh, well, okay, I'll watch where I order my fish from, or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try my best not to have this or that or the other thing. But you don't know if the, if the pharmaceuticals you're getting, even sometimes from your local drugstore were counterfeit uh, mm. because they can get snuck through and sold as legitimate. Um, and often it's at the same price. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, we had spoken about while setting up for this was uh, the really good fraudsters are not going to get caught because they know how the system works and their transactions don't stand out. So, uh, you know, they're not calling up the local drugstore and saying, hey, I can save you 40% on your, you know, whatever prescriptions are. That's going to be a red flag. They might say, I can save you 1% over what you're currently paying. And that's not going to stand out as being anything out of the ordinary. Um, you know, so, so you might be literally buying bad stuff at the local drugstore. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think all valid points and, and really good points. So I, I wanted to jump into, um, the next part of the, of the report and look at a few recommendations that you've highlighted. Uh, so there's, there's, uh, five different recommendations. I think the best thing is if we can just 
run through all of them and and see what we can do to combat this issue. So if if we'd start off, uh, maybe Michael, you'd you'd start by um, elaborating a bit on the vessel ownership listing as a risk assessment tool. Absolutely. So I think um, one of the major goals of the paper was to be able to literally do just this. When you're, uh, and uh, I think we'll get into it a little later as well, um, when you're one of the large global trade banks, the JP Morgans, the cities, the HSBCs, you've got enormous budgets and you can bring in the best tools and the best products to help you figure out what exactly is happening at, at literally any given second in any transaction. When you're a smaller medium bank, uh, if you're a smaller medium business who cares about this, you don't have access to those sorts of resources. But if you're a smaller medium bank, uh, especially here in the US or in the UK, you have to pay attention to and follow the OFAC or OFSEA guidelines, which involves understanding what's happening with your vessels, uh, the, sorry, the vessels that your goods are on, the owner, all that good stuff. So certainly every bank is going to go look and see, um, is the vessel on the uh, SDN, DSN, I always get the letters mixed up, but the do, the do not use list. Um, but that's that's not enough, and it's pretty clear from from the regulators that's not enough. But to use some of the different products that are available from uh, the different vendors can be can be expensive for a small business. One of the hopes of this paper was could we have a simple uh, and I'm going to use a very American phrase here, quick and dirty uh, question and answer for should you allow your goods to be on this vessel or not? And the answer is. I think the paper says pretty clearly, if it's an unknown owner, 69.2% uh, of the time, they have probably engaged in risky behavior. So, uh, you know, if you're a smaller, medium-sized bank and can't yet afford or are still doing internal reviews on how do you best uh, kind of get started here, I think a very simple answer is search for the owner. If you can find it, Maybe you're okay, maybe not. But if you can't find it, if it pops up as literally unknown, mm. make sure that you, <laughs> if it happens, make sure you report it in a, in a, in a SAR. Um, begin adding into your contracts and your arrangements with the different freight forwarders and port operators that you won't allow it to be on a, the, your containers and your goods to be on a vessel where there's an unknown owner. They have access to that data. And if it's a contract you have with them, they'll follow it. Um, so I'd say that's a pretty easy one. Um, Tom, why don't I start the second and then sort of let you kind of take them and go from there. Um, so the IMO number. So the second recommendation is to uh, just to have not allow there to be any vessels with an unknown owner. And again, we're talking about just even a company name. Um, the IMO is the uh, International Maritime Organization. It's a UN organization um, who manages the registry of ships. Prior to that, it was all sort of done by private organizations and a uh, the old school, the Lloyd's registry of ships from three or 400 years ago. And as Tom said earlier, probably not too much has changed since then, except the size of the vessel and, and how they're powered. Um, I think, uh, you know, so they have, the IMO had does not have a requirement that the owner's name be listed. And, and the way to think about this is uh, for a company, you have an organizational number, but for a vessel or a ship, you have an IMO number, correct? Correct. Or we also think about um, here in the States, and I'm sure it's everywhere, every every car, every vehicle has a what we call a VIN, a vehicle identification number. Same thing. It's like the unique identifier for the vessel. Wonderful. Um, and when you register with the IMO, you have to have one of these to have your ship 
uh, out on the water. And basically everybody that manufactures ships is required to, to get one for a vessel, even before it has a name. So basically every vessel on the water of a certain size has one of these. But when you register, you don't need to list the owner. It's not a requirement. There are requirements about the size of the vessel and the, you know, the the DWT, the deadweight tonnage, or the maximum it's allowed to carry. There's a number of other requirements. You need what's called a registered owner, but you only need that because you have to have your ship registered in a country, and every country requires you to pay a fee to have a business in that country and be able to register the ship there. So not because of the IMO, but if you want to even have a flag on your vessel, which you need, you have to have one of those. But that doesn't really mean anything because it could be a subsidiary of the ultimate owner. It could be a three-layer shell company that you'll never find the ultimate owner anyway. Um, but if the IMO, uh, if the UN IMO were to be lobbied effectively and were to begin requiring that that information be included, that would be, I think, a very solid first step towards solving some of these problems. All of a sudden now, anyone who doesn't want to list it uh, is being painted into a corner of, yeah, I'm I'm clearly one of those bad guys because I don't want you to know who I am, and uh, you know it, I think that will uh, that would be a good first start. Uh, from there, Tom, I'm going to let you pick up the um, beneficial ownership and how that matters, plus uh, customs, and then um, I can get back on the vessel flag one. So uh, go ahead. Great, thanks. Uh, <clears throat> so, what do we do about this lack of transparency? Well. Uh, a key recommendation in the paper is that a beneficial ownership registry for commercial vessels should be established at the uh, International Maritime Organization. That's the logical place where this should be. Uh, this should be a publicly available uh, registry of all ship owners. Now, this would not uh, be required for the major players, the Maersks of the world. These are large uh, multinational corporations um, on stock listed on stock exchanges. The public knows because of that who always and controls those companies. Uh, this is this registry would be for the majority of global shipping. Those small. Uh, mom and pop, so to speak, uh, operators who have four, five, six ships, um, but don't have a very uh, transparent ownership structure. Those are the folks that would be required to um, submit their ownership information to this registry. It would allow law enforcement anywhere in the world. Uh, it would allow uh, financial institutions that uh, provide trade financing. It would allow insurance companies that insure commercial shipping to have a better understanding of who actually owns these vessels. So that's that's the key uh, the key recommendation in the paper, I think. Uh, a fourth one um, is focused specifically on the United States, and this sort of references what I mentioned earlier, these 500 or so ships that made 800 visits to U.S. ports last year. The U.S. could be a global leader in requiring beneficial ownership information provided to Customs and Border Protection prior to allowing the vessel to dock at a U.S. port. Uh, it, this would certainly, in the first instance, um, help ensure 
port security for the United States, but it would also send a signal to our allies, certainly in the G7 and in Europe, um, in the EU, as well as all the governments around the world, that this is a new era of transparency uh, in the uh, shipping sector. We have to create a culture of transparency that does not yet exist, and the United States uh, should and certainly could be the leader in that effort. Would, uh, just just to follow up on that, is there any potential downsides you'd see that uh, for for yeah for a company to take that position? Uh, would they try to circumvent uh, the regulatory pressure of uh, of ha- having a beneficial owner or, or similar by then going to yeah or increasing trade with other countries or similar? What what do you think could be the potential negative consequences? I don't know if it's a negative consequence. I think as we've discussed uh, uh, earlier today that um, fraudsters and criminal organizations are going to look for any soft spot they can find to continue their operations. Uh, If the U.S. were to do this uh, unilaterally, uh, it would probably in the first instance um, cause some ship ship operators and ship owners uh, not to dock at U.S. ports. Uh, they would focus their attention on other countries. That is why uh, a global beneficial ownership registry is what is going to be required. So they don't sort of play arbitrage with who's got a requirement for transparency and who does not. Um, the U.S. can be the first in the water, so to speak, um, but I think that would that would indicate a, a more global effort to make this um, a, a, a global standard. We had picked the U.S., by the way, not not just because Tom and I are here, but um, they we had tend to have the most stringent uh, sort of port uh, requirements. So um, we thought, let's see, as we were working on, you know, what are the different case studies we we're going to do in this paper? Let's see what the most stringent are doing. And you can imagine that there's a lot of countries that are far less interested in this um, with far more port visits from unknown owners. And while we don't have data to, 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 to give in terms of uh, what are the odds that those vessels with unknown owners are, are uh, outside of the U.S. conducting illicit business, uh, we did identify a couple of um, uh, VLC or VLCC uh, crew, uh, very large crew ships or whatever they are for um, who are owned um, because we didn't put this information out. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the different things, but they had been in the U.S. Uh, they were purchased by uh, a company, a shell company, really in another country, and are now transporting Russian oil. Now that doesn't mean that they're necessarily violating a sanction. You can do that. There's just a price cap. So the question is, are they um, also selling, are they sure that they're selling the, the oil and the right price caps and so on? But you can, you could, it's not a big stretch to imagine that um, if your business model as a ship owner is to have a few sanctioned port stops as a way to supplement your income, you're probably also fine to carry counterfeit goods or, or, or any other sort of illicit uh, trade. Uh, I think that's probably right, Tom, right? <laughs> that sounds right. Yep. <laughs> 
Wonderful. Uh, and then jumping on to the to the final one, which is the the vessel flag to be an independent risk factor. So this one is it's much smaller. That's why it's at the end. It was just something that I think surprised us as we were working through. Um, in the last few years, as uh, every conversation that was happening at every trade finance event covering what are the red flags for vessels, and it's you know it could be uh, have they been in a sanctioned port or um, you know, do they have a history of, of AIS outage, uh, which we'll cover, you know, that sort of uh, bit a little later in this podcast, um, in this episode here. Um, the question of um, the where the vessel is flagged never was viewed as its own real red flag. It was like, well, maybe, but it has to tie in with, you know, this or that or the other thing. And I can tell you, I have said that at least 15 times at events in the last couple of years. Uh, I think the data around the three countries we specifically pulled out, which is uh, Liberia, the Marshall Islands, and Panama, um, shows that actually it is its own independent risk factor on par with, um, I would say, on par with AIS outage. I think the paper shows that the single biggest indicator would be unknown owner or not. But um, of all of those uh, 8,300 vessels with an unknown owner, 35% of them are flagged in just those three countries. I don't think it's a hard uh, reach to say that it's probably, you know, no better anywhere else where it's unknown. And um, depending on where it's flagged, I do think now is a real risk indicator. Um, you know, probably if it's flagged in Norway or the U.S., it's probably okay. We, you all have very strict requirements. So do we. But there's a lot of other places where the requirements are less stringent. Um, you can sort of pay to have a flag, if you will. Absolutely. Well, and uh, let's let's jump into the AIS uh, outage. Please give a def- definition of uh, what is it, why is it a problem, and and how does it tie back to the to the overarching problem of uh, not knowing what the what the ship's been up to. Sure. Uh, Tom, why don't I start that one and I'll hand sure. over to you. Yep. So just as some background, um, and I think probably nobody even knew what this was unless you were literally in the shipping industry until the last few years. Uh, AIS is, um, some people like to call it a transponder, but that is, uh, it's called Automated Identification System. And that is a signal sent out by every single vessel. It's a, it's like a box in the vessel that sends out the signal of where the ship is on Earth, its latitude, its longitude, the direction it's heading, how fast it's going. Um, it also sends out manually entered information like the ship's uh, draft, which is how deep it is in the water. I say manual because um, early on, a number of banks were using the, the, the broadcasted draft and it's changing or uh, changes over time to try to figure out if it's offloaded or unloaded um, <laughs> goods at different at different ports or to another ship. But uh, because it's manually entered, there's already room for error. Um, it's also not something that can actually be automated and it really isn't worth the investment. Um, the biggest one would be uh, you can't bring your boat into certain ports uh, depending on how deep the port is. So there are some very deep water ports. Uh, most LNG type vessels cannot go into most ports. That's why a lot of the major LNG ports have pipes going two or three miles out into the ocean uh, and you offload there. Um, it's a standard industry thing. It's called lightering. Uh, so a vessel pulls in, it measures its real true depth and then um, offloads uh, containers to a side ship as needed in order to be able to go into the port. Um, so AIS outage is basically when the AIS is turned off. And Tom's got a very good opinion about why that can even be, which I'm going to have him cover in a second. Um, 
But that can be switched off for a couple of reasons. There are legitimate reasons, although you should never do it. Um, one of them is you could turn it off when you're in port. You're already there. You're already docked. Um, there's, uh, there's potential electronics that could be uh, uh, messed with, although I think most vessels probably just leave it on when you're in port. Um, instances where some legitimate captains will turn it off is um, when there's a, a literal actual fear of piracy. Now, what happens is this is broadcasting exactly where you are on Earth. And if you're going near an area where there's uh, a lot of piracy, i.e. people on boats coming in and invading your vessel's machine guns and taking you hostage, taking goods and so on, um, that can be dangerous. And there are human lives lost from that. So uh, depending on the year, I think uh, there was some in the Mediterranean, some on the western coast of Africa at different times in the last couple of decades. Um, some captains will turn the AIS off. It's very dangerous because they can find you anyway. And if the pirates are on your on your boat and you are calling for help, the Navy can't come and help you. They have no idea where you are. Uh, AIS's true purpose is safety at sea. It's to tell, uh, think of the Titanic. Nobody knew quite where it was. Um, it's literally to tell others where your vessel is. Um, but a lot of fraudsters and criminals have recognized that they can turn it off, conduct an illicit transaction, turn it back on, and then just pretend there was a malfunction. Um, a lot of the, the companies that provide this vessel uh, tracking data can ha will have it since the beginning of time when the ship literally went into water for the first time. And uh, they know the size of the ship and they can compare it to other vessels. So one of the ways that sanctioned vessels are caught is uh, if they're if they take longer to go from port to port than they should, if they disappear for multiple days for no reason or even weeks, um, and they happen to be near a a country that is generally thought of as sanctioned, uh, there's a great uh, there's a great map that I just can't find. I, I was looking before I joined on here of a vessel that came out of the Straits of Gibraltar, um, partway out in the ocean. It turned its AIS off, and 25 days later, it showed up on the Cape of Good Hope down in at the end of South Africa. And said, yeah, I don't know what happened. It was a weird thing. I guess it just came back on. But without it being a hard stretch, every, and especially with the way it was pointed, it ended up going to Venezuela, exchanging cargo and, and, and so on. And then um, started heading its way down to, to the south of Africa, turned its AS back on and said, I don't know what happened. <laughs> that vessel has been sanctioned. <laughs> but that's very common. Uh, so um, with that, that's just an explanation of sort of how it happens and and. There are services and sites that track AIS, um, but dark uh, dark voyages and, and and outages is often, especially over a certain amount of time. Oh, and I should say this: just because it go and AIS isn't tracked for a few hours, it is a very old technology. It's not like your cell phone, right? It's not like constantly pinging. It, depending on how fast or slow you're going, it it sends the signal at certain intervals. Um, so. Uh, but most uh, most of the the companies that provide that data would say that if it's in less than 24 hours before since they've heard from you, it's probably not a thing unless you're in a couple of very specific areas, the South China Sea, and near enough to Iran that you can make a day run back and forth. So uh, it does happen. It's not a perfect technology. It's definitely not purpose built for sanction screening, um, which is a problem. But uh, uh, Tom, let me just stop there and hand over to you to, to talk about why this is, you know, a, a problem. Well, you mentioned sanctions right at the end, and I think that's that's a key issue. Uh, the way sanctions are evaded very often is by ships turning their AIS systems off 
they'll meet another ship uh, somewhere in the ocean off the coast of a sanctioned country. Uh, they both go dark. Uh, they exchange whatever uh, petroleum products or whatever goods they want to uh, sneak into a country to get around sanctions. Um, no, no one can see. There's no tracking. No one can see where they are. Uh, they make the transfer. Uh, they depart from one another, and then a day, two days later, they turn their tracking system back on. So um, this is a very common occurrence to, to evade sanctions. Michael mentioned piracy. Uh, that is the reason why some shipmasters turn their IES systems off. But when they do that, uh, any uh, potential of being rescued by a Navy is made more difficult as well. The Navy can't see where they are. Uh, so uh, it's a double-edged sword of whether you really want to do that. The fact that you can turn it off at will, to me, doesn't really make sense. Uh, much like a black box on an airliner, uh, the pilot can't turn that off mid-flight. Um, uh, you can't tell where the plane is. And the same should go, I think, for uh, commercial vessels as well. It's interesting that there's a new technology that's recently come on the market built by Saab, uh, which is called the VHS Data Exchange System. It's more powerful. It's uh, it uses satellites to beam uh, ship position and other data uh, to land-based receiver systems. That's not the case with AIS now. If you're in the middle of the ocean, uh, not near a land-based transmission uh, tower, you go dark in that sense. Um, this would avoid that. Uh, I'm still unclear as to whether the, the, the ship's master can shut it off or not. That's a little bit more research I need to do on this, but... It does look like uh, there is new technology uh, coming online that hopefully makes uh, tracking uh, ships a lot more effective. And Saab, yeah. if you're listening, call us. <laughs> so that was a great segue into the next topic where I think what we should do is jump into a bit of what is happening next. So technological development, what are we seeing? What What's emerging in terms of the technology landscape? And how will the shipping industry look a couple of years down the line? So maybe, maybe Michael, you want to want to kick off on that one? Sure, sure. So uh, I think that um, you know, despite some of what Tom and I had been saying earlier about the shipping industry not being so different from the 16 or 1700s, uh, there's a number of initiatives right now um, trying to get to the same place. I think that we all are, which is a little more. Uh, they wouldn't say transparency, but uh, you know, a little more information. So there's an organization called the Digital Sh Container Shipping Association, I think, or the Digital Shipping Container Association. I, I, I don't have it open in front of me. Uh, they are working to, um, uh, to make uh, bills of lading electronic, and they have buy-in from a number of, of companies or, you know, shippers or ship owners. Uh, but I think it, um, the last time I looked, it was maybe a half a percent of bills of lading are, uh, electronic. And if you think about, again, 80% of world trade, the amount of world trade happening any given day, it's sort of uh, crazy that so little of it is electronic. Um, you can see where there'd be some obvious efficiencies, a um, little better information for, for banks to be able to use. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at this point, there isn't a lot of it. They've set goals for like 
uh, maybe it's 25% of it in a few years or thereabouts. And I, I hope that that, uh, I do hope that that happens. Um, you know, I think at some level, the better information we can have about transactions, the better information we have to determine is this a fraud or not. Now, as we said, the fraudsters are the best at making sure the transactions go under the radar. Um, but not everyone is 100% fraud. Not every transaction is entirely fake. Sometimes you're sending lower quality goods. Sometimes you're just pricing them a little differently as a way to launder money. And being able to have access to that information vis-a-vis uh, -vis the bill of lading would be, would be massive. Um, the idea that there's ever going to truly be a, a standard price and a standard price checking tool is is a little hard to imagine when you think that any given product, you know, if, if the more purchasing power you have, you're going to get a slightly better deal than somebody with less purchasing power. So, uh, you know, there isn't going to be just one set price. It's, it's not how it works. But um, a better range based on real data would certainly help us figure out if somebody you know, doing the sort of over under invoice uh, version of laundering money. Um, in terms of uh, the ES and G perspective of it, there's a lot of um, push for vessels to in the, the next generation of vessels to be more uh, more energy efficient, um, to be you know to be thinking more about the environment. Um, I know at the event that we did a few weeks ago, or I guess it was, was that last week, Tom? Goodness. Um, there was a, there was a, a you know, we had a, uh, somebody from Oceana there speaking about illicit fishing. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tie in on how can we, uh, how can we improve the supply chains in food and food safety? Um, the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol have begun a pilot program uh, where you can, as a company, can volunteer to list um, a sort of business number could be a LEI or a Duns mm. or or another um, for any part of your trade transaction, which would include vessels. Um, again, it's volunteer or voluntary. Uh, Customs says they're doing this to see which of those three. Um, I think the third one is called business ID um, to try to figure out which one would be the easiest or the best uh, to require. So there's a hope that they will begin you know, in the coming years, requiring one of these business identification numbers like an LEI to be able to go into a U.S. port, that could alleviate some of the challenges of asking the owners to put a, uh, you know, their their ownership name and information, at least just the company level, into an IMO registry. If you want to bring your vessel into the U.S. and you have to give an LEI, there's at least a business name there. Now, that's not enough but it's better than you know we have on those vessels those uh port visits that tom was mentioning so there is some movement certainly every conversation we have every podcast we join every event we speak at i think raising awareness that this is a problem mm. people just get their goods i mean i'm looking at my desk laughing at all of the stuff i have on it that was probably shipped here i'm certain none of it was made in the u.s and uh <laughs> you know I have no idea how it got here. It just showed up. <laughs> uh, but we should. We should care. You know, we should absolutely care about how it got here because of all of the the challenges and the complications in, in the supply chain. Human labor, human rights, manufacturing chemicals, bad chemicals being used, lead in the paint, all of that stuff. So there's a lot more to this than just, you know, the vessel owner. But, the, you know, we have to kind of make advancements where we can. <laughs> absolutely. I think to, to wrap up the episode, I think that um, 
I'm interested to learn if there's any particular recommendations you'd have to the listeners of The Laundry. A large portion works within financing, within banking, and within compliance. So in terms of what we've been discussing today, briefly, what recommendations would you have to the listeners of The Laundry to make sure they know sort of what or they familiarize themselves with the shipping industry and the sanctions and and prepare for what's happening next. Perfect. Uh, Tom, why don't I start this and let you tie it into why it really matters. Um, So if you're a U.S. or a U.K.-based bank, you have to be aware of what's going on. You need to be investigating this. You can be asked it at your bank examinations. Um, You can't just hide from this. You can't just do nothing. Um, You have to be involved. You can't show up to your bank examination. It's now been three years since OFAC issued their guidelines. You can't just say, oh, we're just hearing about them or, oh, we're still trying to figure it out. You've got to have a plan. It doesn't have to be getting every single piece of grit under the fingernails of every part of every single thing you do, but you have to do something. You have to be able to show to uh, bank examiners that you're that you're moving forward on this. And I think um, depending on your budget, you might be able to use some of those excellent tools that are out there. You might just need to begin using our recommendations. Check for vessel owner. (laughs) Um, But you have to be doing something. Um, Even if all you do is say, well, the goods we finance are only between the U.S. and Europe, there's very little sanctions risk between that. So we investigated and we determined that we don't have to do any additional due diligence. Um, Maybe you should have, uh, if the vessel owner comes in as unknown, pause the transaction, um, or certainly if it's ever happens uh, for for that customer, maybe you want to uh, make a note that you need additional due diligence on them to make sure that there isn't anything else shady. Um, when you're a large bank, you have so many customers, you do the best that you can. Um, you can't give everybody additional due diligence, then there isn't additional due diligence, it's just the same. Um, and most companies don't really represent a problem. So identifying what are the companies you need additional investigations on and why, having some clear rules around it, having somebody charged with managing that, and then uh, I would say having an interfunctional um an interoperational team, somebody in your trade team, somebody in your money laundering, your sanctions team should be talking regularly because, uh, and I'll wrap up with this in hand to Tom, I've never yet met a criminal who only does one thing. If you violate a sanction, you've got money you need to launder, you're probably also frauding somebody somewhere and you need to be regularly sharing this information. The criminals don't operate in silos. Banks shouldn't operate in silos. Uh, What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I think you, you covered it pretty well. I'll, I'll just relay a very brief uh, but recent story. I was meeting with the head of uh, trade finance in a mid-sized bank in Europe just a couple of weeks ago, talking about uh, their risk sensitivity and how they go about assessing risk of potential customers. And I mentioned the issue. This was prior to our paper coming out, but of course, I by that, I knew the results of the research. I asked this person if... Uh, they had any uh, worry about uh, ships on which the goods they were financing were going to be delivered and whether the owners of the ship was of any interest. And she said, we never give it a thought. And I think that is a probably a not uncommon uh, point of view of a lot of banks. And I think, and I would hope that this paper 
uh, is used in an educational way for those banks and insurance companies that are at financial and reputational risk to rethink that point of view and, uh, and institute uh, policies and programs that can address it. Wonderful. I think that's, uh, that's a brilliant way to round out the episode. Michael, Tom, it's been brilliant having you on the podcast. I hope every, everybody uh, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And until next time, this was The Laundry. <laughs>